0: Of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we ask that you would shine on the page. Jesus, we ask that you would show up by the power of your spirit and in showing up, produce change on the spot. Would you, would you replace fear with yourself? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So what can be done about fear? Why is fear humanity in a word? Why is fear in the core of your being? Why? Well, the answer is found in the most unlikely of places, isn't it? In this passage, the answer is actually there. Look at verse 25. It's found in a word, a word that most of us, including myself, needed help. Well, figuring it out and pronouncing it, propitiation. See it? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The answer, the solution to fear is in there. This word, propitiation, is loaded with the sum of all fears. It's the Lord of the fears. The fear that rules them all is tucked inside that word propitiation. That word propitiation is like the headwaters. It's like the spring. It's like the fountain from which... All other fears flow from. So in other words, all other fears spin off of propitiation. All other fears in our life, all the phobias, I mean the most ridiculous ones, you know, like fear of reading and whatever, I've seen the list. It grows every year because we're all paranoid. All fears attach to this deep, inherent fear in the center of propitiation. And new fears are always spawning and expressing themselves, but they're coming from the ultimate fear embedded in propitiation. What is it? According to the Bible as a whole, according to Romans 3.25, according to the word propitiation, fear is in the heart of our being because we feel deep in our bones. We deserve doom. Some of you are saying, I do not. Okay. But the rest of us, deep in your bones, we feel, we know, we deserve doom. It might consciously play out in our life, and we're fully aware of it. But most of us, we go through life, it's a subconscious reality that just has fissures and fractures and breaks that work its way into our relationships and work its way into our identity and, and eventually shatter us. Therapists try to tell us we don't deserve doom, but deep down we don't believe them. Our parents are the first ones that come along and say, listen, you don't deserve doom. Family tries to come along and tell us. Friends try to come along and tell us. We come along as communities and as cultures and as In our art, in our literature, we're all trying to generate this reality, listen, we don't deserve doom. But none of us believe that because we know we do. We know we deserve doom. The message we deserve doom is incredibly unpopular. I do not know why I'm doing this on Easter, (laughs) but here we are. Right? I think I have this, I don't know what I have. I have some kind of problem. (laughs) Hopefully the Bible will help me. But it's controversial, right? It's not only unpopular, it's controversial. It's also resisted. A message that says, we deserve doom. I mean, we flock to that kind of message. One reason that I think it's unpopular is this. I think it's unpopular because we've pitted, we've pitted a God of judgment and a God of love against each other as if they both... Can't exist at the same time. Becky Pippert, I think she thinks that way too, in her book Hope Has Its Reasons, says she says this think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Just think how you feel when someone you love is ravaged by evil. Perhaps their own or someone else's. How do you feel? Are you indifferent? Or do you get angry? I get that emotion. She goes on to say, do we respond with a benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. Do you see what she's saying? She's saying this. The Bible says that God's wrath flows from his deep, deep love for his creation. And so evil and sin and injustice is ravaging what he loves. It's undoing it. It's it's like the flood. It's seeking to claim and conquer and decreate the wonder of what he loves. And he doesn't just sit there and watch the ravaging with a benign indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to evil that's ravaging what he loves. Right? Miroslav Volf gets that. He's a Croatian. He lived in the Balkans. He saw all the violence in the Balkans. I mean, his description of what he saw is pretty, pretty disgusting firsthand. Um, he has written a book that is called Exclusion and Embrace. It's an award-winning book. It's a very popular book, but he doesn't see God's judgment and God's love pitted against each other. This is what he sees. He sees God's judgment flowing from God's love. How? This is what he says. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. He goes on to say this, and it's an indictment of all of us, because we are who he's describing, because he doesn't live in that world, but now he teaches in that world up at Yale, and he says, you know, y'all, he wouldn't say y'all, but we would. He said... You know how you get a God of judgment and a God of love pitted against each other instead of one flowing from the other? You know how you get that? You don't get it in a scorched land where people have been raped and murdered and violated. They realize it's God is both. You get it, quote, in the quiet of a suburban home. When bullets aren't whistling over your head and loved ones that you love aren't being ravaged, you don't talk like we do about separating God's judgment from God's love as if God's love has nothing to do with how he would feel when what he loves gets ravaged, right? Another reason we deserve doom is unpopular as a message, I think, is because here's the hard one, so if you want to leave, you can on this one. Lock the door back there, bro. We think doom is undeserved. Don't we? I mean, how many times do I get in a, in a, a conflict or, a relation, or an interaction with my wife do I actually think I was at fault? I mean, I think I'm getting better. But really, is my first stance to say, Honey, you are right. I'm so selfish. Bingo. You got me. I'm yeah. I'm so defensive, and I'm so selfish, and I'm so self-absorbed. I'm, you're right. You're right. No, that's the last thing that comes out after, you know, hours of tears and gnashing of teeth. It finally comes out. We think doom is undeserved. C.S. Lewis does it this way. He has a fantasy novel called The Great Divorce. He describes this busload of people from hell. Now, bear with the metaphor. He describes this busload of people from hell that that go on a field trip to heaven. And they get to the borders of heaven. They haven't gone in, but they get to the borders. And emissaries meet, right? And, and the heaven emissaries are pleading and urging and begging those that are on the busload from hell to get off the bus. And to leave their sin that traps them in the hell they live in behind. And no one gets off the bus. Because no one wants to. Quote, hell begins with a grumbling mood, Lewis says, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and ever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell, Lewis says. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom, end quote. There's a very popular preacher up in New York, his name's Tim Keller. His hero is C.S. Lewis. The New York Times called Tim Keller the C.S. Lewis of this generation. That's not a small moniker. That's breathtaking. That in our generation, someone's being likened to a giant like that. Well, he, taking this passage, comments on his hero's words saying this, "'The people in hell are miserable, but Lewis shows us why.' We see raging like unchecked flames, their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humanity is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. Hell is that writ large. Lewis says hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. In other words, the Book of Romans so far would tell us, if it wants to describe hell we naturally think of some future day, right? And rightly so, because that's true in the Bible. But you know what, Romans, if you were not, if you knew nothing about Christianity and you were to open the book of Romans and you were to learn about Christianity for the first time, just from the first three chapters of Romans, you know what you know about hell? Here's what you would know. Oh my, it's God giving me what I most want forever and ever and ever unchecked. We know we deserve doom. And we know when people come alongside us and try to tell us that we don't, it's not going to work. Because we know ultimately, according to the Bible, we deserve it because we want it. We want our doom. So, what can be done by fear? Well, first thing we've got to know is that telling us we don't deserve it is not going to help. It seems compassionate, but it's really not. I'm telling you it's not compassionate. The scriptures are telling you it's not compassionate. It's actually the opposite. Uh, We know we deserve doom. We know fear is real, so we need a real solution. We need something that's going to just grab us and say, here's reality. This is how you deal with fear. This is how you deal with doom. That's what we need, and that's what we get from God. Always in the scriptures. If you're here for the first time in church for a long time, here's what I want you to hear. If you don't hear anything else, I know you want reality. I know you long for reality. You long for someone to actually speak into your world and give you reality. God does. He'll tell you everything you want to know about yourself and he'll tell everything you want to know about your relationships. He'll tell you your deepest, darkest fears. He knows you. He knows reality perfectly. Here's the real solution, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. I'm gonna give you the definition. Hopefully you find something in there that rings true for you. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. If that doesn't get you, it means to extinguish God's judgment. If that's not landing on you, it means that all hell is completely absorbed, killed, destroyed, done away with until there's nothing left, until all doom is gone. That's propitiation. Propitiation is all that is doom being extinguished, put out, absorbed, absolved, done away with. And so the question is, well, how does that happen? What has the power to absorb all of hell? What has the power To deal with doom. Do you see what God does? He turns it on himself. The judge judges himself. God spills his own blood. God put forward... As a propitiation by his blood. God dooms himself in our place until there's no doom left, until all doom is finished. That's how you deal with doom. You have God take it on himself. Now, don't miss this. God doesn't doom himself reluctantly. Do you see that in verse 25? Perhaps. It might not get there with your translation where it says God put forward Jesus. What's fascinating is the word put forward is, has, a, has two meanings, and so commentaries are divided over which one it is. I don't th- Personally, I don't think we need to do that because both of them mean the same thing, just giving you an angle at a different angle. It means this, a purposed planning whom God put forward. It's like a purposed planning. In other words, God in his heart and all eternity, he purposed. In his own desires, in his own will, in his own passion to do something. That's one part of the meaning, to put forward. The other part is this. The mercy seat, you know your Old Testament history. Where was the mercy seat? The Holy of Holies. So you had these concentric. Now, you could go into the Holy of Holies how many times a year? Once. Good. Could you go in there? No, never. Who could go in there? A priest. A priest. Okay, and they tie a rope around him just in case he doesn't make it so they can drag him back out. It's concealed the mercy seat. It's hidden. It's in a secret place. You know what this word means? It's put out in public for all to see. No more concealedness. No more hiddenness. The mercy of God has gone public because God is passionate about mercy. So God the Father passionately puts forward God the Son as the doomed one in our place, as a propitiation in our place. Now don't miss this. Jesus doesn't doom himself unwillingly. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus sees the doom, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where it's starting to hit him, He sees the doom and he turns into it, willingly. He sees the storm of all storms, the perfect storm, the doom of all dooms. Think of the most heinous things you can think of, it's in that storm. Think of the most debilitating, alienation, rejection. Cosmic condemnation, a complete disintegration of yourself, a complete tearing of the fabric of the universe. Well, everything was made to be in relationship to God and relationship to creation. And decreation is unleashed and he walks into the storm willingly. Jesus is abandoned by God, but he does not abandon his love for you when he walks into it. And he never abandons his love for you while he experiences all hell unleashed on him. Jesus is forsaken by God, but he never forsakes his love for you. Jesus is doomed by God, but his heart breaks in love for you while it's happening. Look at verse 25. Again, I mean, that's all we're doing. It's just all on 25. To be received by faith... How do you deal with doom? How do you deal with fear? Do you know what that little phrase to be received by faith tells us? You have an option. You can try to deal with it on your own. You can try to deal with doom on your own or you can trust in the doomed one to take your place. And that's how you deal with it. You can try to deal with fear on your own The heart of all fears, which is this, I deserve doom, and all the ones that attach to it, that are attracted to it like a magnet and just build up over our life and over our life and over our life, fear of man, fear of disapproval. I mean, it goes on, fear of lack of comfort, whatever the fears are. You can try to deal with it on your own. Or it could be received by faith. In other words, you can put your trust in Jesus being doomed in your place to deal with the root of all your fears, doom itself. So this is what it would look like. To trust in Jesus and his blood for the first time means you become a Christian. So for the first time, if you're like, how do you become a Christian? Well, when you become a Christian, you start saying, okay, all right, this can be received by faith. I can deal with this on my own. I can try. I can try to put distance between doom and me through a a successful career. I can try try to put distance between me and doom in a romantic relationship. I can try to put distance between me and doom in however way. Or, Or I can trust in the one whom God put forward as doom in my place. And have it really definitively finally dealt with. When that happens, you become a Christian. Now, let's say you're a Christian and you're, you're wanting to figure out this Christian life thing. Well, now here's what you do. You trust in Jesus and his blood when feelings of guilt come into your life, when feelings of shame come into your life, when feelings of disapproval come into your life, when feelings of accusation and judgment from others or yourself, or you think they're coming from God come into your life. Your feelings are a great gift. They're a tremendous gift from the Lord. Because they they help us see when things are out of whack. When you have mega feelings, you don't have to feel. You know, even if you're a guy, you got feelings. When they happen, when you're angry, it's telling you something's going on under there. Feelings don't just come from nowhere. They don't just snap up because of a chemical. They actually have a root that's rooted somewhere in our soul. And the root in our soul Shows itself in its emotions and our emotions and our thoughts. And so when you start having guilt and accusation and judgment and condemnation, here's what you can do. With those feelings come, you trust in Jesus and his blood that he was doomed in your place for you, and you begin to experience his love for you. Even in your fears and even in your anxieties, even if you're still fearing, it doesn't necessarily mean the fear is going to go away. but we do know this. The Apostle John, who's like the doctorate of fear, you know what he says? Fear can't be will-powered out of your life. It can't be pushed emotionally out of your life. The only thing that can get rid of fear is something else has to replace it. He actually says this: "Perfect love replaces, drives out fear. So, if you're going to have any success in moving with the fears in your life, it's going to be by you getting that there was someone who was doomed in your place out of tremendous love for you. And that love is somehow eventually going to kill those fears and drive them out. All right, well, what about? So, so what do you do? Well, receive Jesus doomed in your place by faith to become a Christian and to grow as a Christian. Receive it. It's to be received, it's present tense. It's not once and for all, and now it's done. It's actually the way we live the Christian life. We've got to receive it over and over again. Also, what happens when you have a real desire or you actually do want to punish someone? I've never felt that way, but I know some of you struggle with this. (laughs) You know, you, you just, you get angry at someone, and you judge them, and you accuse them, and you want to go at them, verbally at least, physically, possibly, what do you do when you want to? What do you do when you have? You know what you do? You start trusting to be received by faith. You start trusting in Jesus and his blood as the doomed one in your place and you will extinguish the wrath that you feel in your heart. And you will learn forgiveness. And you will learn to love those folks that you're having a hard time with more than you need them to fill some something in you. Receive Jesus doomed in your place by faith. All right, got to wrap up. Uh, you guys know what a blow-up is. How many firemen in here? There was one in the first service. Oh, none in here, and I am the expert now. Yeah! <laughs> Alright, a blowup is the worst nightmare of every forest firefighter. Only a hand wait. Brother, you didn't raise your hand. He's the chief doggone. He works in the fire department of Waco. Okay, brother. I will try my best with this one. Only a handful have survived the tail of the tail, right? A blowup starts as a ground fire. Usually lightning strikes a particular area and it catches on fire. And then it, it goes from a, a ground fire to what's called a crown fire. It's when the Things launch up into the trees, and now the trees and the branches and the canopy crowns. The fire jumps there, and now we're moving towards a blow-up. Here's what happens. Firefighters say, those that are out there, they say that when it crowns, when a fire crowns, it sounds like a locomotive coming at you because trees are lighting up like matchsticks and all the air is being consumed in the area, and the noise is deafening, and it's loud, and it's thundering. They describe it as a locomotive going too fast around a corner that it's not going to make. When a fire crowns, though, it can shoot out fire missiles. It can land hundreds of yards away from the original base fire without a firefighter knowing it. And so you could have hundreds of yards with the base fire that they're fighting and another fire starting behind them or around them that they know nothing about. Two fires. Now the conditions are getting ready for a blow-up. Because what happens when the air in between this area, in between here, this unburned area, when the air in here gets above ignition point, all is needed is one thing, and you get a blow-up. What is it? Fresh oxygen. The wind shifts. Air blows in, and the air literally Ignites. It catches on fire and a tornado of fire happens that incinerates everything in that area in a manner of seconds. In 1949, in the height of the dry season, in Mangulch Valley, Montana, a fire started by lightning. Mangulch Valley sits between two mountains... Right here are two mountains, and the valley sits right here. At the base of the valley, down here, is a bunch of flatlands and grass, heavy grass and trees, and then there's the Missouri River. And then you got two and a half miles of an incline up to a rugged ridge at the top. So these guys, the smoke jumpers, the special forces of fire, forest firefighters, They were established right after World War II to do this. They parachute in, and they start walking down to the base fire that started at the base down here. And while they're walking down to it, it crowns. Hits the trees. When they set up their positions to fight it, they didn't know it, but missiles started being shot behind their position. Dodge, the captain, realizes and sees the fire starting to the side of them and behind them with the base fire here, and he says to his men, It's time to get out of here. And they start hiking the two and a half miles out of the gulch. They are 400 400 yards from the fire. About 20 seconds later they hear this and feel this massive explosion that shakes the whole valley they're in. And they turn around and every face turns white as they watch the air catch on fire. And now, it's a foot race to the top. Pickaxes are dropped, saws are dropped, shovels are dropped, backpacks are dropped. Everything's shredded and it is a race. In that fire world, temperatures reach 2000 degrees. Can you imagine? It's sucking the air out of the whole valley, they can barely breathe, their, their lungs are on fire, they're burning. Their legs are so fatigued they can't even move, but they've got to or they die. Dodge turns around and looks at the fire and makes a decision. He's like, we're not going to make it. He estimated they had about 30 seconds. And that's when he did the unthinkable. He starts another fire right in front of them. And it takes off. And he steps into the fire and he beckons, come, follow me. And 13 men looked at him with sheer horror and fear and panic on their face and they blew by him. And when he realized no one was coming, he laid down into the ashes of his own fire. Thirteen men never made it to the top. Only Dodge survived. Because he knew a fire can't burn twice. Propitiation means that you and I can lay down and find life, and find help in the ashes, in the doom, and the death of someone else. Fire can't burn twice. Doom can't burn twice. So let's together go where the fire, the doom, has already burned.